Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In a celebration of the many voices of women around the world this week of International Women's Day, Arts Express presents a gathering of female voices in this collective presentation. First, one woman, a multitude of musicians and singers who have come together from more than 20 countries around the world, then moving on into the greater historical perspective of the way things are or should be. Don't pay the rental on your humble flat. 
as a hatter, which luckily, I am Alice. It's you. You're back. Alice? Alice! See, Alice? You're absolutely Alice. I'd know you anywhere. You're all late for tea! Alice has returned to Wonderland. Since you've been gone, the Red Queen has taken over all of Wonderland. Find out! <sighs> Help us make the world right again. Oh, my I need a pig here. I love a warm pig belly for my aching feet. <laughs> Stop that. And that was a scene from Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, starring Mia Vashikovska as that mystified Alice struggling to make her way through that unconventional, to say the least, magical world. And the Australian actress joins us on the show to talk about her latest film, Blueback, in which she grows up as a child of environmental activists and now a scientist returning home to the Australian shores to fight against the corporations destroying the local ocean life. Likewise striking about her portrayal as Abby, a character originally a male, and how she came to play Abby as a female instead. But first, a scene from another of Mia's many unconventional portrayals as a nightingale in the animated Oscar Wilde, The Nightingale and the Rose, also starring in this tragic tale, Jeffrey Rush as the oak tree, then Mia Veshikovska. Here at last is a true lover. Night after night have I sung of him, though I knew him not. Night after night have I told his story to the stars, and now I see him. What I sing of, he suffers. What is joy to me, to him is pain. Who are you? Only a student. Why is he weeping? Why? Why? He is weeping for a red rose. For a red rose. Go to my brother, and perhaps he will give you what you want. My roses are red, but winter has chilled my veins. 
Is there no way by which I can get it? There is a way. It is so terrible that I dare not tell it to you. I am not afraid. Hello, Mia, and welcome. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, great. Why was Blueback a film you wanted to be part of, the story and your character? Um, I, it came to me sort of, I think, in the middle of the pandemic, and I just felt very ready for something that was positive and, and had a lot of heart and that was moving and when I read the script I sort of felt those things and that combined with my really long friendship with Robert Connolly, the director, I just was thrilled. I read it one night and then the next day I called him and I was like, I'm in. <laughs> okay, now your character was originally written as a male. How did you approach and flesh out your character different in any way as a female and as opposed to a male? Well, it was always a female when I was attached to it, but um, I remember long before I was attached to, to the film, Robert was telling me about this film he was working on and how they just had a big epiphany and they'd changed the lead character to a, from a boy to a girl and that it had started to come to life with that change. And um, I thought that I've always remembered him telling me that and then, you know, a year or so later I he sent me the script and I, I jumped on board and um, I just thought it was a really great change for this time and also because it's true that a lot of women are really at the front of the climate movement at the moment and um, especially female scientists and I just think that that's a, that was a really great shift in the story. Now, Blueback is also very much about environmental issues and their destruction by corporations. Is that something that drew you into this film, and in what way? It did draw me in, um, because I feel like I remember, you know, it's so, it's so hard to know what to do or, or how to help, and sometimes I feel like what I liked about this film is that firstly it had a really, there was a sense of positivity and hope, which I think is really important, especially for the younger generation. Um, and then in terms of the um, the message of it, I think one of the most important things that we can do is increase the biodiversity of our local environment. Um, I feel like that's something that everybody, no matter where they are, has the ability to do if they if they really you know want to or try. So. Uh, yeah, and I thought that was, you know, a beautiful message in the film. Like, it's quite a, a sort of simple life Dora and Abby lead, but they've made a huge contribution to to the earth by focusing on protecting their local bay. And, um, you know, if that can inspire people to look at their area and see what they can do, then that's, that's good for me. And how is the destruction of the environment an issue where you live in Australia? What's that, sorry? How is it an issue? Oh, um, well, I mean, I live in Sydney and it's an amazing environment here. So there's lots of opportunities to sort of get out and, and you know, contribute. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's the sort of thing you can do anywhere. And Blueback is a different direction for you from your experiences in Hollywood. How would you compare a film like Blueback to your life in Hollywood films? both the positives and the negatives, and that about which you said, quote, after a while, it leaves you feeling hollow. Um, well, I just have a great time. I mean, it's, I got to work with some really wonderful friends, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, it, yeah, I guess every film feels different to me, um, and that's one of the kind of joys of, of being an actor, I guess. You can... Uh, get to sort of experience all these different worlds and, you know, get exposed to different skills and experiences that, um, yeah. So I feel like every film feels sort of different to me. And what about your relationship to your characters, other selves, at the different ages of Abby? 
How did you approach distinguishing yourself from the other Abbeys? Um, well, I I got to cross over with them by a couple of days when I was at the end of my filming as they were beginning. And we got to hang out a little bit and spend some time together. We didn't sort of have conversations about what we would do and blah, 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 mannerisms and whatever. Um, and I think that that was sort of the, that's the right approach because you just want kids to be normal and natural and sort of make the, the grown-ups or the adults in the audience make the leap between their abbeys. But um, they just did such a beautiful job, those girls. Um, Ilsa and Ariel were really talented actors and, yeah, it was, it was wonderful to share the character with them. Now, you've portrayed Madame Bovary, Jane Eyre, and Alice in Wonderland twice, and The Nightingale in Oscar Wilde's The Nightingale and the Rose. What is it about those classic literary figures that inspires you to portray them? I don't really know. Part of chance, <laughs> those things have just sort of come my way, and I've thought they were really wonderful characters, and, and I've been sort of lucky enough to, to be able to, to play them. Um, but yeah, I don't really know. I, I'm not sure. It's a period theme. And where do you see your journey in film headed now and into the future as to what inspirations to follow? Um, I, I don't really know. I'm definitely um, uh, looking to sort of move into other areas of filmmaking. And I, I really like acting, but I'm definitely not doing it. Um, sort of in the way that I used to, I, even though I'm, I feel really lucky to be able to dip in and, you know, be a part of the industry and, and then sort of dip out. Um, but yeah, just sort of just hoping to continue doing my own thing and trying different things in life. And what would you like Blueback and its theme of protecting the environment, in this case, ocean life, to convey to audiences out there? Well, I hope it inspires them and I hope that it, it moves people. I think that it's really important to have a sort of emotional connection to our environment. I think that's the best way to sort of um, uh, feel compelled to, to change our behaviours and, and, you know, make choices that take into account our, you know, climate crisis and, and, and you know, our local environment and, yeah, I think that if we care more, we're more likely to sort of, you know, respect the, the earth and, yeah, each other. Yeah. And anything coming up next for you? Um, I just finished a film in uh, the UK, an Austrian-UK co-production, a film called Club Zero, um, and that's all at the moment. Um, uh, it's a film, it's directed by... Jessica Hausner, and it's a film about um, a teacher who sort of um, starts to manipulate her students. Um, so, yeah, well, I, I won't say too much more about it. <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know how to sum it up. <laughs> right. Think yeah. about it before. And what about directing? Oh, yeah, I would love to do that. Um, so I'm hoping to move into, into that a bit Um trying to get some projects up over here in Australia. And when Mia looks in the mirror, what does she see? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it depends what time of day it is and how I'm feeling. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I've been looking at a lot of Zoom today, and it's weird. <laughs> and any last word on Blueback? Uh, I, hope people, I hope people enjoy it. I hope that, you know, it finds an audience in America. Um, so, yeah, he's hoping. Would you say Blueback is different in any way as a film for children rather than for adults? Um, well, I think both can enjoy it. I think it's, you know, really emotionally engaging on, on all levels for everyone. I think, you know, especially the mother-daughter relationship is really beautiful and I've had a lot of older friends sort of comment on that and and then you know a lot of kids and my niece and nephews really enjoyed it and yeah so I think it's sort of a you know a true family film. Thank you so much Mia for joining us on the show from Australia. Great thank you so much. Okay bye. Bye. 
and Blue Back is out now in release. And coming up next on Arts Express, Did you know that the U.S. suffrage movement was the largest bloodless revolution in world history, enfranchising more people than any other law or effort? How about that the progressive movement from 1890 to 1920 was the greatest period of grassroots social reform in the history of the world, and that most reforms were carried forward by women and their clubs and organizations? Well, whether you answered yes or no, there will be plenty of opportunity this month to learn even more about the work of women in creating our nation, because March is Women's History Month. All month long, people all over the country will explore the many historical contributions of women throughout our history, something the National Women's History Museum does all year round. The International Women's Day on March 8th, largely influenced the creation of the first ever Women's History Week and later evolved into a full month. The first International Women's Day in 1911 came during a time of great revolution and solidarity amongst women's groups around the world. The celebration emerged from the activities of the labor and women's suffrage movement of the 20th century in North America and Europe, and the efforts of American women had great influence on the development of the holiday. On February 28, 1909, the first National Women's Day was observed in the U.S. The celebration, which was declared by the Socialist Party of America, helped spark the idea for an International Women's Day. In the early 1900s, Many working-class women in New York City made their living through work in factories, making everything from clothes and shoes to household items and teddy bears for children. The conditions they faced were deplorable, being forced to work long hours, often facing abuse, and barely earning a living wage. Outraged, women in the garment industry began to strike. Though American women had led strikes from as early as the beginning of industrialization in 1824, the 1909 strike in New York City was historic, as wealthy female customers joined in support of some 20,000 striking workers. Led by the Women's Trade Union League, middle and upper class women donated money, arranged for legal representation, spoke to the press, and even participated in picket lines, and were arrested and jailed. Momentum came from further tragedy. Two years later, on March 25, 1911, a devastating fire broke out in New York's Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, where women worked behind locked doors because management feared that a union organizer might slip in. 146 people, mostly female immigrants, either burned to death or were killed when they jumped from the ninth floor factory. That same year, in 1911, an International Women's Day was declared by German socialist Clara Zetkin and Alexandra Kolontai, a Russian feminist representing textile workers. The holiday celebrated the women's rights movement internationally and was also inspired by New York's working-class women, most of whom were immigrants. Six decades later, during the 1970s, Americans continued to celebrate International Women's Day, and it gained increased popularity as the second wave of the women's movement gained momentum. At the same time, Many universities during the 1970s felt pressure from the women's movement to teach an inclusive American history that represented all people, including women and racial minorities. As a result, schools began to include the fields of women's history and women's studies 
in their curriculum. In 1978, the Education Task Force of the Sonoma County Commission of the Status of Women in California convened a National Women's History Week celebration. The week was chosen to coincide with March 8th, International Women's Day. The following year, in 1979, Sarah Lawrence College held the Women's History Institute, which was chaired by noted historian Gerda Lerner, who was elemental in establishing the field of women's history. Prompted by the National Women's History Project in Northern California, President Jimmy Carter declared a National Women's History Week during the week of March 8th in 1980. International Women's Day was chosen as the focal date for this first celebration. And seven years later, in 1987, Congress expanded the week to a full month. And what you just heard was a presentation of the National Women's History Museum, part of a series created by Catherine Hardwick, director of the Twilight series, We the Economy, and Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go! You sure? Yeah. Callie Corey, and I'm here on Arts Express. Thank you so much for having me. Thelma Louise has been my first script. I'm very happy that it managed to find its place in the lexicon and still holds a relevance for women. There was no way to have forecast any of what happened, which was great. And coming up next on Arts Express, Bro on the Global Film Beat, Class, Crime, and the Blonde Bombshell, the case of Marilyn Monroe versus Diana Doors. First, some scenes from Diana Doors in the 1957 trucker noir classic, The Long Haul, also starring Victor Mature, and a rare instance in the past when an abused woman gets to slug her male tormentor. At last, the cameras probe for the whole violent truth about trucking industry mobsters and their women. Getting just a little tired of waiting for you, Joe. I'm hungry and I want to go and eat somewhere. You want to eat something, then eat something. In this pig house? Listen, you were serving in a pig house like this when I picked you up, baby. Watch out, I don't drop you right back among the pigs. This is Bro on the Global Film Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Diana Doors versus Marilyn Monroe, Class Crime and the Blonde Bombshell. She was called the British Marilyn Monroe, but in fact, in very telling ways, their paths and personas were different. The difference conveys some important truths about Doors Society Britain, one that was more class-based, and Marilyn's America, hell-bent in the 1950s on erasing any traces of class consciousness. 
Both came to prominence in the oversexed, because in actuality horribly repressed, middle and late 1950s, where misogynist terms like sexpot and bombshell were applied to any actress, though not to actors, who gave off even a whiff of sexual liberty. With Marilyn, this aspect of her persona was seen as part of her naive charm. With Doors, it was part of a bad girl image from which she never strayed. She truly maintained, as a critic once described Richard Widmark, who often portrayed seedy lowlifes, the courage of her own sordid convictions. Yet, underneath the tawdry image, in her British noirs of the period, the long haul, tread softly stranger, passport to shame, all available for free on YouTube, there was an acute identification with her working class roots and with the pain as well as the solidarity that an exploitative class society often engendered. These films, in which he had a prominent role in the late 50s, were the precursors to the whole-scale entry of working-class characters into the British cinema in the early 1960s with what was called the Angry Young Man, or the Kitchen Sink Films, because they often featured working-class figures lurking around those sinks. Beginning with Richard Burton and Look Back in Anger and featuring Carol Reese's majestic Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Marilyn had a different trajectory. She too had a humble working class background, and in her early films, John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle, Roy Ward Baker's Don't Bother to Knock, and Preminger's River of No Return, she was often a set upon outsider who still managed to maintain her innocence. But something happened around 1954 when she moved to New York and started studying at the actor's studio, which nearly ruined the authentic quality she brought to her early roles. When she became an actrice and started acting, she began to conceal all aspects of her actual roots and moved toward becoming an unmoored icon in a 50s America that claimed to have abolished all class distinctions in the victory of capitalism. The low point of this second phase was 1956's Bus Stop, torn from the condescending New York stage, where she plays a bar singer who falls for a rodeo cowboy, Don Murray. Both are seen as nearly subhuman, so inarticulate, they can hardly communicate, and the actress Marilyn is happy to dumb down her character as she helps throw an upper-middle-class elite gaze on working people. Doors was the quintessential bad girl, a 40s label for women who breached the social code and sought independence, almost from her moment of entering the British film industry in 1948's Good Time Girl, about a rambunctious teen who breaks the society's rules and shows no remorse for doing so. After being condemned to a cruel women's boarding house and being a victim of a lascivious father, she breaks out, eventually led astray and into serious crime by first a gangster and then two hardened American servicemen. What is supposed to be a morality tale about the dangers of taking wrong turns, that is defying a society with rigid rules for its working class women, Instead, through Doors' refusal to radiate guilt, turns her tragedy into triumph. She then partially tried to reform and become a more standard blonde heroine, but that part of her persona never took. She instead went from brash prison inmate in The Weak and the Wicked to 56's Yield to the Night, an intensely sympathetic portrayal of a woman in her last days, condemned to death for the murder of an abusive husband. In its branding of capital punishment, as actual crime inflicted by the state on female victims, that film shared the limelight with the American I Want to Live, done two years later, another meticulously sculpted portrayal of the sadism of the state's death sentence against this time a powerfully resilient Suzanne Hayward. Doors was lauded for her role at that year's Cannes Film Festival. Doors was then offered a contract with RKO in the U.S., and her persona was immediately altered in John Farrow and Jonathan Lattimore, the director and screenwriter of The Big Clock, to first bad girl and then repentant sinner in The Unholy Wife. She is saddled with a 50s loving, but actually coercive, arrogant, moralistic, Napa Valley wine merchant Rod Steiger, who can only think of their child, which his wife never wanted. Had it been made today, this film might have been called The Unhappy Wife, as in the end, Doors is stripped of her platinum blonde hair, and as a bowed brunette awaiting the electric chair, she repents and finds religion. The film, which strayed so far from her persona, was not a success. Perhaps the best thing that happened to her was that she returned to Britain and starred in three remarkable noirs. 
The first was the long haul, about a crucial sector of British working class employment, the trucking industry. Victor Mature, his hard-bitten face here still able to convey longing before he consumed himself in an alcoholic frenzy, stars as an American vet who signs on to a transport company run by a gangster. Doors is the at first equally hard-bitten gangster's mall who instead falls in love with family man Mature, but eventually cedes her place with him and returns him to his family as she consigns herself back to her former prison as a club girl at the Congo Club. She is both seductive but in the end also attuned to Mature's wife and child. Her meeting with them is presented not as submission to bourgeois morality, but as solidarity in her recognition of their importance. This film and Hell Drivers about the same industry are almost a direct line to the British working class cinema that will follow, outlined in my chapter on British film and class crime and international film noir. Next comes perhaps the best of this trio, at least in terms of Doors' persona. In Treads Softly Stranger, she comes between two brothers and one of the bastions of the British working class, the northern steel town in Yorkshire, of Parkgate. The film features extensive on-location shots of the factory, which one of the brothers, an accountant, intends to rob. Doris' character Calico, at first a kind of freeloading sexual user, is pushing for the robbery and seems to be nothing but a gold digger, as she instead falls for the accountant Dave's older brother, Johnny an itinerant gambler, returned home from London to hide because of his debts. When the crime unravels, though, Johnny charges her with exploiting men. Doesn't anybody mean anything to you? She answers with a remarkable monologue which softens and makes understandable her path, and which is not only her character's story, but also partially autobiographical. I come from a slum, from the gutter, where it's quite a step up even to the pavement. I never had a home. I never had a father my mother could put a name to. I never had a thing till one day I found I was attractive to the opposite sex. My legs could be used for something other than to stand on. I had one talent. Most people haven't got any. So I used that talent and I got tough. She then says she never loved anyone until Johnny. So in her mind, she was never unfaithful, but that she is faithful to him. The monologue is a clever deconstruction of the exploitive personality she was forced to adopt and her struggle to escape it. She will wait for Johnny, and this becomes the fullest expression of the pain behind the bombshell persona perhaps ever in the cinema. Finally, in Passport to Shame, Doors has the secondary role of the again-hardened sex worker in a house of prostitution in charge of overseeing the initiation of a new recruit. The ingenue, though, falls for a taxi driver who eventually exhorts his buddies in the cab company to rescue the recruit. Doors also falls for a not particularly handsome but very sympathetic cab driver, friend of the lead character, helps participate in the rescue, and leaves with her new friend. Again, a film where her persona as hardened exploiter gives way to someone who returns to her working-class roots, to male-female solidarity, instead of cutthroat exploitation of each by the other, as she rejects the pull of the glamour of capitalist society, whose promise of material well-being is, in the end, seen as empty. Diana Doors had a remarkable career, particularly in the late 50s, at a time when Hollywood was simply full of beauties for their own sake, personified by Marilyn Monroe. She helped cast a new light on the working-class origins of these characters, which went a ways towards their ultimate dissolution, while also branding her as a working-class woman of the cinema par excellence, perhaps the reason why her performances are now almost forgotten. This is Bro on the Global Film Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I'm always happy when there are new poems from poet Connie Norgren. Connie's ability to pack in so much meaning into a deceptively spare line makes her a favorite poet. She is the author of Falling Again, published by Finishing Line Press, and Same Boat, published by Five Spice Press. Her book, Tonight's Quiet, was selected by Alfred Korn as winner of the Bright Hill Poetry Book Competition. And now Connie Norgren, 
reading her own poems. Hi, I'm Connie Norgren, and I'm going to read some poems. And I'm going to start with some poems kind of about writing and hopefully about other stuff too. And the first one is called Dear Page. An acorn's weight of heavy, but you are a room, a big room. You hold a touch, a waft, a leaf, a step, a cough, a look, a head turning, a crash and sirens, rain, a window opening slowly with a breath sound, refrigerator hum, plank of a door, a stretch of sidewalk, walk sign, glove dropped in the street just now, or layered with weather, a pattern in the sand, the water in the sink, trembling. And this is a poem that kind of presents or brings back into memory Enid Dame, who was a great Brooklyn poet, organizer, teacher, editor of Home Planet News with her husband, Donald Lev. She knew everything about Brooklyn and wrote it down. At one point in her life, she was in a medical facility, and they wouldn't let her have a pencil. So this is a poem called Enid for Enid Dame. Enid denied a pencil. She told them, I'm a poet, one hand still one reaching. Her night harbor hair, black, black, the surge, the wave of it. The glittering boats far off, low sounds across the water and the caught light. An owl cannot see more, dark in a dark tree against dark sky, above nettles and thistles. Lilith and Eve hovering, all wild, with wild resting places, like any owl watching, soft-feathered owl, for Enid Dame. And this is a poem about spoken words, as opposed to written down words. Dear Spoken Words, you words you blunder, Rung out wrong, sung flat, tossed into air. Some sounds, same old, or you're the laugh track, the rat-a-tat-tat of the TV from childhood. Any mouth moving that won't stop, won't stop, won't stop. You can't call yourself back, can't erase yourself. You only go on, get deeper in. Then one day or another, you crack open stone, make sky. And last time you asked me about my father or my family's influence on writing, and I realized but from that question when I was thinking about it later that my father was a huge influence. He, was, he, was a, um, he loved words. He was a printer, and he printed them out, but... He also wrote a billion postcards, and they were very carefully crafted, and they were packed with words. And this is a found poem from some of his postcards. I have a whole um, cigar box filled with hundreds of them. And this, this is a, a compilation of lines from postcards. Postcard. My 5 a.m. project this Monday morning was to tackle the malfunctioning, ever-ready flashlight. I succeeded by removing the plastic O-ring. Pine needles are falling fast. Bill next door is taking some. Ball of garden twine is available in kitchen entry. I have also marked the position of the linden tree root, which extends into the garden. Avoid digging or planting near it. The hillside in the back is approaching the zenith of autumn coloring. Are you recording your accomplishments in the log of work done? 
Now we're going into a different realm, a realm, but it's still, this is still childhood, and this is a poem called 1952. 1952. Many small hands folded, hands we called white, yours folded the same. You sat in the middle row, halfway down, serious, reading the words. You threw the ball back. All that lining up, pulling chairs into circles, standing to pledge, one nation. Then that sound, the fold-up seats falling flat, receiving the whole class at the same time. The sigh in the air after. Then the quiet, the killing quiet. And this is called learn, which we are all doing as a nation, but not fast enough. <laughs> um, learn. For Trayvon, smell the damp air of nighttime Florida, his hoodie a soft covering for his head. For Oscar, imagine party joy, friends surrounding. For Sandra, her clear questions. Hear Philando telling the truth. See Kenneth Sr. at home, Kowalski at home, Mrs. Bumpers, Brianna, Mohammed at home. Amadou on his top front steps, Stefan in his grandmother's backyard, Tamir with his airsoft at the playground, Michael Crawford holding a toy in a toy store, Eric warmed by the morning sun, Walter Laquan before running, Daniel before his unmooring, for Sean celebrating, for Dante his fine day so far, for Akai, quiet in the dim hallway, for Adam in the shadow, for George, easy that morning, his big hand opening, opening, his big hands opening. And this is a poem based on a photograph, and it's called Border, for John Moore's photograph. This small face turned up to a stream coursing. The bottom of the five-gallon jug is a moon, and this cascade catching in his hair in the folds of his ear is a cap of sparkling. His two hands offering the soft white of soap to the sky. You know this shining boy skin, these eyes closed tight this ecstasy. Here's water in a place where water is scarce. Here's John Moore with his camera. He saw this mother, her boy, this clean water flowing. Saw the loops and swirls of the tattoo on her slender wrist. Miguel Angel, it said, Miguel Angel. And this is called Dear Feet, I think we're going to some city poems. Dear Feet. Dear Feet, you make your way. The worn linoleum, the same sidewalk hills. You used to find yourselves running. Dear Eyes, you've seen the cold glitter of stars more than once and dawn and the leftover rain in the parking lot. Here's the bus at night in winter, heads nodding within, its body a house, its one softly lit room. Climb on, your heavy coat and others' heavy coats, everything spent. Dear mind, you go from choppy to ice to home. The churning sea, the light switch at hand. One of the places that I really love is the subway. <laughs> and, um, and, and this is a poem for the month that's coming up. It's called Dear Beginning of March. 
Dear beginning of March, you grew a whole field of coats, all soft browns, some speckled, some dark as rained on wood, all still as mushrooms. Here and there, the fall of a scarf, flower of a hat, yellow bud of a dropped mitten. I'm at one end of the subway car, sitting, folded in, not wanting. I think this is the last one. Yeah. Seeds. Some random spiraling, and that's me, landing there in a space between the small rock and some okay soil. A maple seed drifted down. You, by the woodpile, smoke everywhere, that sweet smell. It's tricky turning into yourself. Or maybe that was you involved in the rock fall, sliding into the water, settling among pebbles. And if we happen to fit there, and whether we have enough air and or the wherewithal to wiggle ourselves unstuck when we are stuck, like the tiny trout going along, free now, hanging onto the rushing water. And you've been listening to poet Connie Norgren reading some recent poems of hers. You can read her work in her books Falling Again, Sane Boat, and Tonight's Quiet. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.